Hiya, Duncan Green here with the roundup of the last two weeks posts on from Poverty to Power. If you can hear a whirring in the background, that's the fan. We're in the middle of the second heat wave of the summer here in London. But by the time you hear this, I will be somewhere much cooler. I will be in Scotland and I can, uh, I'm pretty, you can rely on rain, cold, increasingly good food and the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is this amazing uh, packed event of theatre, music, comedy, which uh, I try and go to every year. And you can kind of pack in three or four shows a day for a week or so. And uh, it's just amazing. I'll be back at the start of September. But uh, meanwhile, I'll fill you in on the blogs for the for this week and next week from where I'm speaking. So the first one was Links I Liked, the normal uh, Monday morning kickoff. Really interesting piece by Cameron Hill on the Dev Policy blog, which is an Australian blog called PowerShift USAID and Localization. And the thing that struck me in this is just it brought together two different conversations and uh, in a light bulb, which also made me think, well, duh, why hadn't I thought of it first? Which is, if you want to talk about local localization at large scale, there is a way to do this. You give money to governments. And, uh, and there's these, been these two separate discussions in, on localization and on direct budget support in the aid business. And Cameron brought them together and I thought, oh, wow, I hadn't thought of that before. And it's kind of obvious once, once someone points it out. I mean, there's all sorts of questions about whether you fund government or whether you fund civil society. But bringing those two things together, I think, makes a lot of sense. Second point on that, links I liked, really horrible news. 148 workers were killed in 2021, the highest in eight years, according to new stats from the aid worker security database. And almost all of them were local staff more than half worked for local NGOs. Um, so that's that's grim. Being an aid worker is, is, is a dangerous business in many parts of the world. Third, nudge. So nudge was all the rage a few years ago. It's this idea that you can make small behavioral, you know, uh, pushes to people and it'll make them do good things or bad things. Everything from sweets next to the checkout. So the kids pester their parents to, to buy them sweets to telling people that lots of people in their road have paid tax and therefore more people pay tax. Um, <clears throat> it seems a quick fix. It spawned a whole bunch of nudge units around the world. And this is a kind of rethink which says the complexity and humility inherent in the application of behavioral science to public policy is probably the aspect of the approach that was most lost by the simple appeal of nudge. So something complex, nuanced and humble got boiled down into a toolkit and a, and a magic bullet happens over and over again with every new idea as far as I can tell in the aid business. Finally, you know, one of the best bloggers on development out there or on politics for me, Branko Milanovic. He's got a sort of stim. He does these kind of massive, not in terms of length, but in terms of scope reflections. And this one's basically on the modern world. And it's called On Import Substitution, Fukuyama, Eternal Growth and More. So not everybody's going to click through on a title like that, but really worth it because I think he's just he's just like going out with someone super smart uh, and just listening to, to what they've got to say. He's read so widely and he thinks so hard. Uh, just a lovely, lovely blog. So well done. Thank you, Branko. But then the rest of August, I'm giving it over to my students. I teach a course at the LSE, which you probably know if you follow the blog, called... Uh, 
something about activism. Basically, I'm teaching activism. Um, by that, I mean activism broadly defined on how do you change the system you're in, whether that's in the private sector, in government, or you know, working in a, a CSO or a social movement. Um, and I have 75 students every year, and uh, they're from all over the world. Absolutely fascinating. Many of them already got you know, plenty of experience in activism, so lots of, lots of really good ideas and good um, tips in the room. And one of their assignments is that they had to uh, come up with a campaign and write a campaign strategy for a campaign they would like to run in their country or elsewhere. And then they had to write a blog or do a, or record a video blog, a vlog, based on their projects. And so I've taken the best of these um, and they're the best logs and blogs, which also are, are backed up by a good, uh, uh, good strategy, good proposal. And I'm putting those up for the rest of August uh, because why not? They're great and they deserve it. So I did one last week. Um, then this week uh, it was um, Sneha Majumda on the sewage nightmare of Delhi's unauthorized colonies. This was a video, a vlog, and her project was to influence the Delhi state government to prioritize the construction of sewerage systems in the unauthorized colonies of Delhi. So that gives you a sense of you know what the kind of issues that people are working on. I won't talk you through the video. You can go and watch it for yourself. The second one was from uh, Maitland Murray, Scottish student. Um, and he's actually really interested in humour. He's writing his dissertation, not for me, his dissertation for the whole course on the use of humour in activism. And he gave it a go uh, in his blog. So uh, I, thought it was, I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, uh, so I will read it out in its entirety. Tired of being called an armchair activist, but very cosy in your warm leather embrace. Spend a lot of time shouting at people in the pub, but sick of hearing that's easy for you to say, but why don't you get out and do something? Look no further with this handy take down a tabloid guide. Five steps. Step one, read up on why the tabloids are baddie. A baddies. Tabloids write some really horrible things, particularly about migrants. There's good research that shows their articles fuel hatred and they're still setting a negative narrative right now. Shouldn't be a hard sell to all you lefty do-gooders. Step two, pick a cheeky corporation. Nosy through your favourite Trashy Rags website. See who advertises with them and pick your target. Ideally, they have a good public image, maybe some values, and mean something to you. Think hand in cookie jar rather than hand in perpetuating hate crimes. I went for Skyscanner as despite cycling to work once and having a reusable coffee cup at the back of the cupboard somewhere, I use them all the time to book flights. Plus we're both from Edinburgh and now there's mere of us doing sooth so we can take un, take un anyone. And I apologise for my attempt at a Scots accent. Step three, do some digging. Use those skills you honed stalking your ex's new girlfriend on Insta. Enjoy the novelty of using LinkedIn for a reason other than posting your honoured and humbled to celebrate my two-year work anniversary. Do your research. Find out who can make the decision and who might care. Talk to people, map them out, take your time and get it right. So that's kind of more like the course I teach. Step four, write a letter. It turns out people prefer to be contacted personally rather than at you migrant-hating alt-right apologist on Twitter. Although don't be afraid to use that as a backup. Except be nice. Sometimes companies make mistakes and sometimes they don't even know they're doing it. 
Be patient, people are busy. I know you're up on your high horse now since you got off the armchair, but they'll need some time and a gentle nudge, but still don't let them off the hook. Step five, shameless self-promotion. Get a reply. Oh, by the way, he gives a really nice example of his letter to uh, Skyscanner. Shameless self-promotion. Get a reply. They agreed to move their ads. Brilliant. You can forever dine out of being the world changer you are. You did a thing. Plus, you get exclusive access to the, oh, I don't want to do it. I didn't do it for attention. It's just the right thing to do line. Top stuff. No reply. Even better. Another company to shout at. You can't say they haven't been told. Don't ever count out capitalism. First my mum, now Skyscanner. Why does nobody listen to me? But hey, if you're lucky, someone will mention that they like the company in the future and you'll have the pleasure of shooting them down, blaring in indignation what a terrible company they are and how terrible your friend is by association too. Enjoy. And then more seriously, he links to Stop Funding Hate's Amazing Work. And he said this is written in the Daily Mash style and see their handy guide, Wean Your Parents Off the Daily Mail. A lot of fun. Thanks, Maitland. Next post uh, was a, a project called Protecting the Protectors. And this is by um, Jimena Altamirano from Peru. Um, the world is going through a climate crisis. Temperatures are rising, ice caps melting and forests depleting. That is not exactly news. While we're all doing our part in protecting the planet, Latin American environmentalists don't have it easy and that should be news. This year alone, five indigenous activists have been murdered in, per in Peru's VRAEM region, which is an Amazonian region. Five citizens who were key in promoting sustainable development in the already, contest already contested valley. Adding to the wound is the fact that nothing has been done about it. And looking at pre previous year's records, it is unlikely that it will, unless we do something about it. And what is it that we can do? Simple, get Congress to ratify the Escasu Agreement. For those unfamiliar with the term, it's the first environmental regional agreement for Latin America and the Caribbean, and the first in the world to deal specifically with human rights defenders in environmental matters. All relating to the environment, it seeks to guarantee rights of access to information, promote public decision-making, and ease access to justice in environmental matters, while also creating the right tools that protect human rights defenders. Yep, this agreement sounds just like what we need, and Peru was among the original signatories. However, for some unknown reason, by no means the letter authored by the largest business association in the country. Him, men, a sarcasm, very low form of humour. Anyway, when it was time to vote for its ratification in 2020, our Congress said no. But with a new government in place and looking at the regional panorama, it's time to try again. As disheartening as the 2020 ratification denial was, it clearly guides our action plan. If the businesses won't come to environmental activism, environmental activism must go to them. The strategy is therefore simple. Make those opposing institutions realise they're losing money by not adhering to the agreement and make the members of the Foreign Affairs Commission aware of this too. What you can do. Small businesses that cares about the care are you a small business that care, cares about the environment and social justice or is disproportionately affected by national disasters and crisis? Find like-minded entrepreneurs. We've developed a platform to divide and conquer large businesses by easing contact between small and medium enterprises, adaptable to region and area of work. Suggested strategies are highlighting how lack of regulation makes your product an endangered species. 
Big business that cares about the environment? Convince your peers. We know you can. Useful tools for this are the IDB's Environmental and Social Policy Framework, informing the sector which kind of projects the IDB will be financing. Ever so casually, uh, causally aligned with the agreement. Not business, but a person that doesn't want more families endlessly seeking justice for their loved ones. Share stories of the fighters, of the lost land, of the irrecoverable nature, and make sure you tag the corresponding legislator or political party in power in the region you cover. In politics, talk to the opposition using their language. They say stability, you say OECD. They say foreign investment, you say World Bank, IDB and EIB. They say sovereignty, you list all the countries where the agreement is in place. Environment, environmental activist, just keep doing your thing. Together we can protect those protecting our planet. Let's get Eskasu now. Very nice. Next one up was a, a piece by Rebecca Milan. Uh, another vlog. So again, I won't talk you through the vlog. It's called Arrest the Trafficker, Not the Trafficked. And the, the, the abstract of her cam campaign strategy is a campaign to require all US law enforcement officers to have extensive human trafficking recognition and victim support education. The goal is for no victim to experience further trauma caused by unwarranted arrest and that all survivors get the proper support they need from the start of their interaction with the US government. Last up on this selection, uh, there are some more next week, but why you should change your mind about the startup, startup that invented the COVID vaccine. And this is from Andreas Brox, German student. His full project is absolutely excellent. When I read that, I thought, blimey, I'm sorry, I should just give him a job now. Uh, and here's the blog on which it's based, but uh, here's the blog which is based on it, but I do urge you to read the full project, which I thought was an absolutely banging campaign strategy. It's been two years since this freaking pandemic has started and as everyone else, I'm pretty sick of hearing about it. Thankfully, it feels very much like it's over in Germany where I'm from or anywhere else in Europe. So no need to bother about this COVID thing anymore, right? There are other pressing issues, sadly, in this world right now anyways. Well, I want to convince you to think about it one more time. I promise there is something you should know about BioNTech, the startup whose success story of inventing the world's most effective COVID vaccine everyone in Germany has heard many times before. The story usually told about BioNTech is that one of its founders, uh, the husband and wife, Ugo Sahin and Oslem Tureci, and the story tells of Sahin's foresight in spotting that the coronavirus will become a pandemic and of his conviction to be able to use mRNA technology to develop a vaccine. Both proved prophetic. German media has celebrated the couple as world saviors and heroes. Let me tell you a different story of BioNTech. As you will know, a shockingly low 15% of people in low-income countries are vaccinated. This is no news. But it continues to be an appalling reality. You wonder why? One reason. BioNTech has delivered less than 1% of its vaccines to these states. It's no coincidence. Poorer, poorer countries were being disadvantaged with abusive conditions when distributing vaccines. Meanwhile, BioNTech is making profits of €23,400 a minute. But the down-to-earth funders Sahin and Turechi are surely not all about the profits, are they? Mm. Shaheen has said he wants to increase production in Africa because it's so important to end the pandemic. In an attention-catching announcement, he presented his solution. Factories in sea containers that can easily be shipped around the world. Sounds great, no? Well, 
a WHO expert called the plan to simply drop these on a different continent. Pure nonsense. The WHO itself is working to help African companies produce vaccines, something BioNTech has refused to support. It argues that manufacturers in the global south are not capable of producing their own vaccines. This is simply false. A study found 120 companies in Africa, Asia and Latin America that could produce mRNA vaccines. Instead of supporting other producers, Sahin's company chose to actively undermine the efforts by the WHO. It hired a consultant who spread false claims about the WHO project, a project supported with German taxpayers' money. At the same time, it advertised BioNTech's container factories. Not exactly what someone would do who only cares about ending this pandemic, is it? Ugo Sahin and Oslem Terechi may be great inventors, but they are not world saviors. Their company BioNTech is actively working against ramping up vaccine production in Africa. They secure their own profits, not the world's well-being. Not surprising to you? Let this post remind you of this the next time you hear that voluntary technology transfers are the key to ending the pandemic. It is time that the German government obliges producers to share their knowledge. Others have done so already. Moderna is sharing its vaccine recipe and more than 100 countries are supporting a temporary suspension of the patents on vaccines, among them the US and France. You think Germany can do the same? Tell your MP about it or share it online. And that brings the end of the student um, posts. As you can see, they've got an amazing range of passions and interests. They blog like a dream and it's just a privilege to teach them, if I can call it teaching. Work with them is probably more accurate. Um, great fun. Have a good summer. Back in September. Bye.